Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Yes, Candace English, uh, welcome to Journey of an Esteem. Thank you. Um, I like to say pleasure. I like to say a few words up front. Um, some of our, many of our guests are multi-talented. They 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 do many things in the arts rather than just one thing. But you are a guest who has a connect, direct connection to some of our other guests. Uh, if you uh, listeners, older listeners will recall that our very first episode was with John Joss, to the filmmaker, and a number of his films were scored by the late, great composer John English. And we also had an episode with Bill Fowdy, who's a wonderful bassist, who also knows our current guest. So, Candace English, uh, I think we would start uh, talking about uh, a little uh, linear chronology. And we're always uh, happy to have someone on the show who, who does many things. In your case, uh, it's quite a lot. You're a violinist. You've been a choral conductor. You've composed music for children and choirs. And you've composed musicals. And you had a long uh, relationship with John English and collaborated with him musically as well. So it's great to have you on our show. Thank you. It is great to be with you today. Really appreciate your interest in John. Yes, uh, we, we will certainly talk about that. Um, did you want to do a little linear chronology about how you came uh, to do the kind of work that you do and how you came to meet John English and his importance in music history? Um, well, John and I were both born in the 40s. I was... Uh, born and raised in an urban environment on a, uh, a kitty land lot in Compton, California. John was raised near Kankakee, Illinois, on a uh, farm. And he grew up um, working on his family farm, raising hogs and cattle, corn and soybeans, 
Uh-huh. And um, something that we had in common was that we didn't like what our parents were trying to make us do. In his case, it was to be a farmhand. In my case, it was to be a domestic servant. So we figured out independently that by being as active as you possibly can in worthwhile activities, you could get out of these um, chores. So um, John learned to play trombone. He was in his first band when he was 14 years old, the Ozzy Ostrowski Band of Bourbonis, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And um, being a farm boy, he had a driver's license, so he was you know, the young man who drove the uh, uh, drunken jazz musicians home in the middle of the night from their gigs. And um, he told me that um, after that, his parents never had the nerve to wake him up at 5 a.m. to make him feed the hogs. (laughs) So he... (laughs) Well... So he was, you know, he really developed a life out of leadership, um, service, music... And um, good works. Well, that's very interesting. So you're you're saying that John English, when he was 14, was what we would now call the designated driver? Yes, absolutely. So he, he, like a lot of musicians, he got a very early start gigging. And I guess one thing that you have in common, well, there's many things you have in common with him. Uh, is that a lot of a lot of musicians do hail from rural um, rural towns, not always the big city, right? If you look if you look at the history of music, many musicians come from places in the Middle West and and, and farm country. You know, it's well, not maybe that's because they didn't have to spend a lot of time running for their lives. I I don't know, but um, right. I do know that there's some great you know names like John Coltrane and many others who were born in the rural South. Mm-hmm. And they learned music, you know, in their immediate world and, and took it out to the greater world. In John's case, I think he felt very fortunate. There was a good trombone player who was a retired musician who lived there in, uh, in Kankakee. But he told me that when he was in high school and they sent him to the Interlochen Jazz Camp, he still didn't know there was anything but bass clef. Hmm. You know, so he came from the bush, but but he um, he persevered over all of that, and eventually he w- was um, inscripted into the army, and there he became the theory teacher of the army band there in Savannah, and developed a lot of le- leadership and teaching skills in that context. Also, he told me that that's where he learned gold bricking. Huh. And staying in the back and not volunteering for anything. So that was part of, you know, staying in the back and not volunteering for anything was part of his survival strategy. So when he was teaching music theory to fellow army musicians. Yes. Uh, what year would I think it was the fifth army band. And that would have been, let's see, you're going to have to give me a moment here. He, that must have been like 1961, 1962 in there. Well, well, as you, as you, as you may or may not know, I mean, our own very Santa Fu Al Hall Jr. Uh, was one of our earlier guests. And he's a musician, quite accomplished musician. And all of, a lot of his early musical experience was military related. So I guess at that time, there were a lot of musicians coming through the armed forces, certainly. 
especially in those years. Uh, well, you know, and I think I might have had those years. I think it might have been three or four years later, maybe 65. But he was at the University of Illinois, and they got an invitation to play with the contemporary music chamber players there, which included John um, at the Warsaw Autumn in Poland. And at the time, he was, you know, being threatened with being drafted, and he tried to get doctors to ferments, and he had allergies and stuff like that. And he did go to Warsaw, and when he came back, there was his draft notice. So he was a Vietnam-era veteran, but he, uh, he was allowed to stay stateside because of his medical issues. That's fascinating. So you're, I guess at this same time, I mean, of course, I only know your work... Uh, uh, more currently, at least what, what what I've been able to glean from online and discussions with people. But in in the in the sixties, what was your musicianship? What did, and what did it consist? I mean, were you already doing violin and voice, or were you doing something else at that time? Or what was what was uh? Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I uh, I learned violin in the uh, Compton City public schools. And I started in fourth grade. There was a marvelous man there, Ralph Metesky, who eventually taught at University of the Pacific. He was the um, orchestra director at USC at that time. And in a very philanthropic vein, he founded a public school music program there in Compton. And that's how I learned to play violin. I also came from a musical family. And my I have a couple of um, minor opera singers in my family and a couple of minor rockers. And my grandmother, uh, when she was a girl, she had the job of improvising to silent movies at um, movie theaters in Colorado. And so, you know, studying music and going into music and loving music and playing music as a family was just something that we did. And it turned out John English had a family band, too, and his mom played piano, his dad played saxophone, and um, I can't remember what his brother played. But they, uh, you know, this was another commonality that we had of feeling that we, that our musical souls saved us and amplified us beyond who we could have been without our families giving us that, that basis. So it's it's almost like parallel lives and music, and par parallel in, li parallel in lives. In some ways, yeah. mm -hmm. except you know, when I met him, I was twenty maybe, and I was like my Julie Andrews was my hero, and I wanted to you know do musicals and stuff like that, and and that was my musical experience. I'd never heard jazz. I had never heard the modern music, which John and his friends were into. Mm -hmm. And um, the first time we ever really worked together, I heard that this guy named John English was putting on a John Cage concert at the Iowa Memorial Union. I never heard of either one yeah. of them. So I informed myself and I contacted John. He suggested I do this John Cage piece, the aleatoric piece where the... Uh, singer assigns multiple singing styles and renders mm -hmm. some colored contours in the score. It's called Aria. 
so he and I met a few times and he, uh, um, you know, mentored me a bit on how to make that piece my own. And that's how we got started. And from that, I became converted to new music and eventually to jazz. And at that time, you know, we thought that what we called new music then, which was, you know, the music of Cage Burial, Weber Wolf, that crowd, um, that that was the music of the future and that we were laying the groundwork for, you know, advanced culture. (laughs) That's interesting. I mean, so that's something you and I have in common because I, I, I study with John Cage at New England Conservatory. Really? Yeah, at New England Conservatory of Music when he was a visiting artist there in the mid 1980s. I don't remember the exact year, I'm guessing 87. And they did all of his work and we do imaginary landscape and, and all of these. Um, uh, and we got to see him lecture on mysticism and Buddhism. And, and he would take some of the students that were so inclined, I think, mushroom hunting. Right, right. mushroom picking because he was really into mushrooms. Right. Um, I mean, he was actually really into mushrooms, also in the non psychedelic sense. You know, as, a, as almost like a like a botanist. And you know, I, I was very the the world. I, 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 the only reason I talk at such length is that you said you became a believer. I never. I was always. I had you know, the milieu I was in in Boston was very much new music oriented. And people were very much into Berio and 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 Penderecki and Ligeti and this kind of thing and Cage, and Morton Feldman. You know, so I was always surrounded by that kind of music, but I never became a believer. I never became a convert, but I was around people who were true believers, and it was very interesting to negotiate that 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 situation. So I, well, I want to backtrack. You mentioned. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned that you love Julie Andrews. Now, what is that like? Because if you're, I guess you're a girl, and I guess the stuff you were doing on your own violin was much more uh, European concert music, right, or violin music, I would guess, right? Right, and you know, it, it takes years to even make a nice sound on the violin, unlike piano or something like that, where you can get a pretty good sound in the first second. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, those years, I wouldn't call it European concert music. I mean, we played Russian sailors dance and things like that, but it was really a very beginning of violin playing. And mm-hmm. um, when I got to high school, I, I thought there were other things more important, like the drill team or cheerleading, and I sort of gave that up. And I didn't get back into it until my 40s, really, when by that time I had kind of blown out my voice and I wanted to continue with the musical expression. So I bought a violin and I started playing. And, um, Uh you know, it wasn't until, I mean, I'm 72 now. Uh It was in my late 50s that I started playing jazz. And I had the good fortune of knowing hundreds of tunes, maybe in the mm-hmm. thousands, because of the family I had and the way they constantly played music. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't in a jazz style, but I right. learned all the standards from Johnny Mathis records. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, Johnny Mathis was a big, was a big artist in those years. 
I, I guess I was wondering. Was. I guess I was wondering. So you were doing more family kind of music, or just whatever a violin, a violin was just part of the mix, not necessarily concert violin music. I was just wondering, what were your favorite Julie Andrews musicals, or what were the th- what were the things that she did that you said I really love this, as opposed oh, to oh, like My Fair Lady. Uh-huh. I guess it would be My Fair Lady, and in those years, like when I was a girl. You know, I I was raised by a single mother who was a career woman. And when I came home from school, there was no one there. And so my thing was putting on, you know, South Pacific or something and just sing, and learning all the songs. And so I knew hundreds of songs from musicals mm-hmm. by the time I graduated from high school because that was wow. just my way of amusing myself, you know, no, and, and looking very- in the mirror and, and singing uh you know, I started off sort of Carrie Hokey style, but eventually I mm-hmm. uh, I was singing along with all those. And so that was the great body of musical knowledge, quote unquote, that I went out with. And when I encountered John English, he said, no, there's a lot more. Yeah. There's a lot more going on. You Let's sure. look at this. Let's look at that. And, um, you know, yeah, it's uh... I, I got so much knowledge from my relationship with him. Without him, I would have turned out to be a very different person and a very different musician for sure. So so you, I guess what you're saying is that you would have been a more of a popular musician or more of a musical theater person? Um, yeah, I think musical think? theater would have been my direction, yeah. So it was because of John English that you got into more uh, different kinds of music. Now, when you're, when you're, Ma, when yeah. you're being exposed... Go ahead, when you're being exposed to these things, what's changing inside of you? Are you starting to hear music in a different way and you just start performing this different kind of music? Are you, what's, uh, talk a little bit about that, that transformation when you, uh, when you develop a new style. Of course, in your case, you had so much uh, musical literacy. I mean, you certainly had enormous popular American popular music literacy because if you're learning the American songbook, you already have that in your ears. So, that, so that's you're, right. You already have that. So it's interesting to think about you changing course and going into this other concert music or this other. So talk a little bit about that transformation or what that what that meant. Well, one thing that happened was um, that we we were in an era of great interest in modern music and the Rockefeller Foundation put out several $500,000 grants to different uh, universities so that we could explore this. And at the University of Iowa, one of those grants was given and a second one for a group called the Center for New Performing Arts. So then we were encouraged to do interdisciplinary work with other artists, not only just pure music, but music with film, music with poetry, music with dance and all of that. And I was a young student in the voice department in the opera workshop there. And um, I was, you know, I noticed that group, the Center for New Music, and they had uh, a couple of very brilliant singers that stood before me. And um, by coincidence and, um, you know, things that are probably not interesting enough to explain, those two women moved on and I got the place of the soprano for the Center for New Music because I was the best young singer in the department. 
and I had met John English and son Aria. So um, I got financed for a few years on one of those grants, and that is how I embarked on learning tons of literature. And I, I actually met Ligeti and spent a lot of time with him and Morton Feldman, too. Uh-huh. And these people came to the University of Iowa, Charles Warren. Charles Warren. Um, I was never into serial music, really. But um, a lot of people came there who influenced us, and and it slowly won me over. But, uh, I mean, also, you know, I was paid to sing that music. Mm-hmm. And another thing that was going on there was there were a lot of young composers and also faculty members who were, uh, you know, writing modern music, and they wanted me to sing it. And I was the smart singer who could render that stuff. And... Um, I remember the very first concert did the Webern Opus 16 Canons. That kind of music. Yeah. And um, the gal. Do you mind doing? Do you mind doing? Do you mind doing that just once more for the listener so they can hear that? Oh, <laughs> oh, uh, uh, you know, I'm just faking it, but no, um, no, I, that I, I, kind I, of very disjunct music that doesn't right. tickle your usual musical circuit, you know? I mean, it, and a very, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say that um, the gal who had to leave and I took her place, she was lined up to sing, to sing those. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, I think it was, soprano clarinet and bass clarinet and so uh it was all lined up so I had to learn those and it took me almost a whole summer to learn those I think there were six short pieces so a lot of it was just pounding it into myself another of those incidents was um I got a Tanglewood Fellowship in 1973 and so John and I Wow. I went to Tanglewood, yeah. And John and I drove out there, you know, to Boston all the way from Iowa City. And we decided that I should learn Straight No Chaser. Yeah. You know, by Thelonious Monk. Right. And uh, it took me the whole ride to learn that tune. Huh. So these things didn't necessarily come naturally to me in the beginning, but I forced fed them to myself. And eventually Uh I became very competent at learning super difficult music. Later we moved to Europe mm-hmm. and I I um I got the same reputation there. If it's impossible, she can do it. So I guess you had this ability. So yeah, I guess you, 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 I want to take a moment here to 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 sing your to sing your praises because I don't know how many listeners have done any kind of voice uh professionally professionally or otherwise. But the kind of music we're talking about is probably the hardest thing for a vocalist to do, uh, or any vocalist to do. So that's really remarkable. Um, it, it's sort of like me playing structures for two pianos. You know, it's just not easy. But Boulez's structures for two pianos. Right. But uh, right. you know, oh. I, yeah. But I was, you know, I had to learn those things too. But I, I again, I learned those things as a non-believer. In other words, I respected all of it, but I never wanted to pursue that path. And my musical path was in every respect the opposite of any of that. Um, For one thing, I am a tonalist, and I wrote tonal music then, I do now. And so, but I always was, because so so much of that music was so popular, uh, 
you had to sort of uh, dip your get, dip your feet into it or your hands into it, and and um, you know it's interesting. Some of that music I admire very much, and some not so much. Um, but it, but it's interesting because I'm, I'm not really a, I wasn't a true believer. Um, what, well, uh, I was really, but I don't think I really knew what it was that I believed in. Mm-hmm. But I w- I was very taken by the intellectual challenge of it, mm-hmm. and maybe by the respect that I received from other people that I thought were, you know, brilliant and very thoughtful. And, the, you know, the feeling of joy that you get from singing a beautiful song or that I would get today from singing Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most, mm. I don't think I got that. But the rewards were, were elsewhere. And like mm-hmm. I said, John and I thought we were on the forefront of the future of music. <laughs> right. Well, that was one of the things about that style of music is that the practitioners of it, you know, were, of course, true believers in it. But they, but they also, I mean, this is my, my opinion, my perspective. They had a very, what I would call a uh, historicist and progressivist view of music. You know, by which I mean that music has a direction and there's, you know, just like, you know, it's 1977 and music's supposed to be this way and supposed to be, a, you know, there's a very much a sense of, 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 of a consensus about music, which I, which I call progressivist and historicist. You know, it's looking at music and it says, you know, what is, what is the age require of me? If I'm a musician, what does the age want from me? And, you know, the age wanted, you know, Boulez and Ligeti, I guess, or people felt that that's what the age, age wanted. Uh, well, at least in some quarters. I mean, now yeah. looking back on it, I think those Rockefeller seed grants, one went to Uni- University of California, San Diego. One went to University of Illinois. Yeah. And really, the, those were kind of the seed composers that, you know, that went out from there. And one that was at University of Illinois, Herbert Bruin. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yes. But he was extremely intellectual and very influential. And he taught John and all the um, really fabulous new musicians who came from Illinois. Some of them came over to Iowa. He taught them all this principle. And it was, if everybody likes your music, there's probably something wrong with it. Yeah. You know, we're not looking for music that is popular with the public. And it is sort of a, you know... I never totally bought into it because I thought it was a little bit looking down on people mm-hmm. and, and, say, and telling us mm-hmm. it's okay to spend your whole life doing something that nobody really cares about because you're, you're, you're forging a new path, and that's the important thing. But I, I wasn't really sure of that. But yeah. John and others were very convinced that continuing yeah. down the road of unpopularity was the right thing to do. That's interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure you read the essay that came out at this time by Milton Babbitt, uh, Who Cares If You Listen? I'm sure you've read that essay, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's a very famous and that's, essay. And that's sort of the attitude. <laughs> well, that's a very, very famous essay. And Milton Babbitt, yeah. I think, in his youth, was a jazz pianist and songwriter. And I, and I know that Milton, I, I do know that Milton Babbitt was one of the teachers of Stephen Sondheim. Uh, along with yeah. Oscar Hammerstein. So these are very interesting 
you know, sometimes people, or Mel Powell, for example, I mean, sometimes people who uh, were, were doing non-tonal music uh, had backgrounds in popular music or ha had backgrounds in music that was, that people did want to listen to. And it was well, I think one of the reasons for that is that they had the improvisational mind, and that takes you out of the realm of what where most musicians are, which is just rendering the music that's put in front of you. Right. You know, so the improvisational mind is, of course, look, you know, asking the question, where's the next note? Where's it coming from? And why am I going there? And that's way different from... Um, you know, the musicians who simply read. I, I have known mm -hmm. some fabulous musicians in my life who could mm -hmm. not come up with anything on their own. Mm -hmm. But if you put a score in front of them, they, it's amazing what they could do with it, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I guess when I was coming up, the, the, the binary or the... Or the uh... I don't know the two. The two. The dual duality was what we. What they used to tell me was the interpretive musician versus the creative musician. Right. I don't know if they use those words when you. You know, but but uh, I guess that's what you're talking about. One person sees a score and they, they have a fidelity to the score, and then another kind of musician just makes up something out of whole whole uh, staff or whole cloth, right there on the spot. So there's different kinds. Of, and then and of course, in between, like a lot of, in those mm -hmm. days, like John um, had a piece that was really widely played around the Midwest called Sequence Cycles. Mm -hmm. And it was just a graph, you know, a graphic piece with different symbols and, mm -hmm. and um, little, you know, boxes that lasted a certain number of seconds. So, you know, there was that also, mm -hmm. the, the in between. It's not really fully improvised. But it's not written out, and sometimes we call that um, performer realized music, mm -hmm. because a composer gives you some kind of format, mm -hmm. and then you would realize it. Yeah, realization, a little bit like aleatoric music, I guess maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, but you know, aleatoric music, music that that um, implies chance things happening, chance operations. Mm -hmm. So when we did four minutes and 33 seconds at the Iowa Memorial Union, uh, you know, a fire, a fire truck went by and a few people mm -hmm. passed gas. So those were the chance things that happened during the silent piece. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I only know John Joss music from, uh, well, first from movies like uh, All the Vermeers in New York, and, and, and um, you know, Rembrandt laughing. And so I know the John English scores for those films, which as, as, as music is actually quite tonal. I mean, his big band writing is a mixture, but there's, there's, there's a, his, the big band music that I've heard uh, uh, is, is, a, is not quite as, is, um, shall we say, difficult as what you're describing. Well, you know, so, yeah. like a lot of us, I think, there's a there's a sense of in life sorting out different influences and then maybe synthesizing or even returning to something that in retrospect has a great deal of meaning for you. Uh -huh. And I think that um, you know the John Jost films gave John an opportunity to write in ways that he just hadn't had the opportunity for before. You know you know 
you got to have a big band to write for a big band. And so mm. the uh, opportunity to to uh, score a couple of films and, you know, and be paid mm. and rent Lucasfilm Studios and things like that, that was made, you know, made possible by his film music career. And I think that the music that's on his CD, for example, John English Music for Film, that that really is the culmination of his musical career and of his taste. And there are things on that record that are, uh, or on that CD that are elaborate um, spinoffs of famous tunes by Billy Strayhorn and Miles. Yeah. And then a lot of originally composed stuff that he just made because he looked at the film and said, it should sound like this. Right. And it, and it really was stylistic to the film. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of the, I think, advantages of musicians like us. And myself, I've written a lot of music for um, theater. And I won um, the Air Critics Circle Award and Hollywood Drama Log Award for my... Um, composition of pieces for a musical called Tokens, which was produced in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of musician doesn't necessarily get fixed in a style. Mm-hmm. I've written Elizabethan music. I've written, written modern music. I've written, you know, music for the crash of uh, a rocket. Mm-hmm. And once you're in that world of theater and you've progressed through classical music, jazz, modern music, in a way you're free. Mm. However, the, you know, the music industry does want you to <laughs> develop a style and stay with it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the commercial uh, aspect of music about trying to put people in a box sometimes. Or, that's right. Or and it's the same with visual art and mm-hmm. you know it, that's sort of one of the real downsides of uh, cultural politics i think but john was not he was not burdened by a style in any way mm-hmm. he just created what he thought you know there's a guy him it turns out in rembrandt laughing mm-hmm. the opening i think it is i haven't seen those movies in years he's riding his bicycle mm. and um you know he made some bicycle music for that yeah that's right. and it ha- it's not jazz it's not modern music it's and yeah is it mostly tonal yes because you know there's a real physical you know physics Pythagorean basis mm-hmm. to the, you know, to diatonic harmony. And um, it turns out that those ratios are really, really important to the enjoyment and understanding of music. And, and he returned to them. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's, that's a, a maybe not so off topic, but um, what, what's your impression, if I may ask, of uh, the... Um, you mentioned this song, Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most. What's your impression of the Irene Crowell, Alan Broadbent version? 
of that. Diana Krall? No, not that. Irene Krall and Alan Broadbent. Well, I guess you'll have to send it to me because I guess <laughs> I haven't heard it, or if I've heard it, I don't know about uh, it. Oh, yeah, definitely send it. No, no, she made a very, a very famous album with Alan Broadbent. And it was actually oh. it was actually patterned after the Tony Bennett Bill Evans album, and uh, that's one of the songs that's on there. Um, yeah. Well, why don't you send me that, and I would love to hear that. And yeah. To me, that's that song and Lush Life. Those are the two monumental songs. Yep. yep. And um, you know, I love singing those and playing those and hearing them and observing them, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, a lot of the literature that we have in jazz is not that profound, but it those songs do show what a wide breadth of feeling and musical, uh, can you call it, musical dynamism are, you know, are in that world. And oh, yeah. Billy I mean, Strayhorn, you know, those people, that was just an incredible high point of, Art yeah, if we're talking in the about, world, in my mind. Yeah, if we're talking about spring can really hang you up the most, I mean, the lyric is, um, you know, that's on such a high level, uh, poetically and um, right. aesthetically. Uh, Fran, Fran Lans, Lansden, and, and um, that's just a, it's just quite a song. It's quite a song. Sure yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it reminds me. You know, me those songs are Ari, the arias of jazz. I mean, yeah, they uh, eat everything, both poetically and musically, right. for me. And, um, you know, we still haven't come to a realization of what a really high art jazz is. Yeah. Not as a culture in general. Yeah, we could talk a little bit about that. There's so much to talk about with you, Candace. I mean, I'm, I was thinking, you have quite a travel history. Did you want to talk about how the two of you, I, I think, ended up in Europe or how that happened or what? Because that was a very Well, you know, we were, we were at University of Iowa Center for New Music. We were both being paid there. We lived together in a little house on Brown Street. And John had had Hodgkin's disease, and he'd had a surgery for it. And um, his surgery was botched, and he got a uh, – it was a splenectomy. And he – hemorrhaged and they had to go back in and redo everything and then from his sternum you know like between the breast down to his navel he was wired together with actual wires mm. as a result of this and um so that like really took out his high register that was the end of you know mozart requiem or Symphony of Songs, or any of those kind of pieces that required, uh, you know, a trombonist with a high register, mm -hmm. which he had before that. So that was kind of discouraging. Anyway, we got together, and and then he had a recurrence and, of his disease, and, and he got chemo for it. And um, it was extremely discouraging to us and that it returned. So we decided we're, we're just getting out of Dodge. And we quit our jobs. Mm. <laughs> we went into the head of the Center for New Music, Richard Herbig. We told him we were leaving. And he said, what can I do to get you to stay? I said, give us the Center for New Music. Mm. And he said, no, I can't do that. It, you know, it was directed by William Hibbert, who um, has passed away. But he was the director of it then. And 
we knew they weren't going to give it to us, but it was just a little joke. In any event, um, we left and we decided to go to Europe. I was a photographer too, so I carried a violin, a uh, my photography portfolio. John had his trombone, and before we left, we called everyone we knew, especially John. He was just aces at this, and um, asked them, do you know anybody in Europe who might talk to us, who might tell us something, who might let us crash at their house? So when we left, we had about 60 names, mm. and we just, you know, go to an airport, go to a train station. It was before cell phones. So John would just go to the phone booth and start calling people Hmm. I said to him once how can you do that Hmm. how can you just call up tell the strangers and and I said I don't understand why you know how you could do that and he said well that's because nobody can tell me to f off Hmm. and he was really you know after you face death and mortality and somebody has told you you're not going to live a normal lifespan mm-hmm. um some people would shrink from that but for him it, it emboldened him hmm. and so we started out in amsterdam we tried to get an apartment there um they had rent control so we ended up buying a steel sailing ship from 1903 it's called the quinto the 40 meter long steel sailing ship it had been to indonesia some of it, stuff like the mast and the rudder and things had been sold off. And uh, we lived on there for a few years. And, you know, there's some really wonderful stories of that life in the you, Amsterdam do, canals. Do you mind uh, talking a little bit about Amsterdam before I move on to another city? Just whatever comes to mind in terms of stories. I mean, are we, oh, is, this in the, is this in the 80s or 90s or when, when, when are we... I guess this would be... Let's see. I guess we went there in 76. Ah, yes. 76. So the, bison the end of the 70s. The end of the 70s. There. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I, my brain is okay. So yeah. So we're. So that's really something. So you're in Amsterdam, and what what comes to your mind that you remember most about your your, your experience there? Well, um, gee, there's a lot. <laughs> I was really impressed by their social structure by the fact that they didn't let people become poor or insufficient. I really, um, you know, we liked walking in the red light district and experiencing um, what was going on there. It was so different, especially from the sheltered Christian farm life that John had had. Mm -hmm. We lived on a boat. Neither of us had ever done that before. Hmm. We lived on this big steel sailing ship. We, in the bottom of it, we built a little stage. We had house concerts in there. It was really wonderful. And um, let's see, what else is really interesting about that? We, John got into several different bands and different groups. He played often at this place called the Bim House. Which was the you know the avant-garde center of yeah. Amsterdam jazz in that time, and eventually, let's see, Amsterdam. I was, I was wondering a little bit about if he ever crossed paths. I mean, who were some of the musicians that he crossed paths with? There. 
Right. Well, some one person that we hung out with was Misa Mengelberg. I don't know if you know about him, but he was an important pianist in that time. And and um, also Han Benink, though I think he was Dutch, but he spent a lot of time in Germany. And, you know, it's as an American, you are an outsider. And mm-hmm. they have had lots of Americans go through and they don't stay. You know, this mm-hmm. is what they would tell you. We know you're leaving. Oh. And so, you know, oh. it's um, it wasn't that easy to get incorporated into the life there. And that was one reason that we moved to Germany, because that seemed more welcoming of an international point of view in the, you know, in the music scene. So after about three years in Amsterdam, we sold the ship because we met these people who were in Karl Heinz Stockhausen's um circle oh wow and and um we never you know we weren't Stockhausen fans but we met quite a few people that were in this world and traveling with Carl Heinz and um his wife Mary Bauermeister and Uh one of our close friends uh was the father of one of Mary Bauermeister's children who was um also one of Carl Heinz's wives so it's all very incestuous and um And fun. So we got the opportunity to move to this house in the country and pay 175 marks a month, which is just like $75 then for this primitive house out in the country that didn't have a flush toilet, didn't have hot water. (laughs) And we lived there for seven years and we toured all over. And the most interesting place that we got to go was East Germany. And in those days, yes. for Americans to go to East Germany was extremely rare. Plus, wow. we were fluent German speakers by that wow. time. So to get to go to East Germany and be among Germans and be able to speak their language and hear what they have to say, you know, on the QT when no one is listening because uh-huh. they were they were afraid and they didn't they didn't want to be overheard making any anti-government comments or right. things like that. And we would, um, it turned out in those times, it wasn't allowed to have a German-German band. So our friends from West Germany couldn't go play with guys in East Germany and form a band because that wasn't allowed. But right. international bands were allowed. So the presence of me or John or both so of us made that, the band international. That's where, I guess that's where you and, and, and John English came in. You could work in East Germany, I guess, or play music. And That's East, right. East and Germany. we were, we, you know, they wanted us Remarkable. because we, like I said, we made the band international, uh-huh. you know, among other reasons. And some of the biggest crowds I ever performed for hmm. were over there. Huh. And for them... Free improvisation, or what some people back then called free jazz, mm. um, it was a, a symbol of freedom for them. Mm. Like nobody was telling us what to do. We were just doing what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And um, that was not so amazing in West Germany, but in East Germany, that was a totally fabulous experience for the audience to see people up there mm-hmm. and we're like musical anarchists. So you, I guess you're doing concerts of this kind of music, right, with John English and what was, uh, you said they'd never heard anything like that before, but what was the feeling 
what comes to your mind about the venues you would play or the politics or the kind of people that would come out for this or any of it, the reception or the, it just sounds, you know. Well, there were, you know, they couldn't get any records. That was not allowed. Jazz records were not allowed. I mean, people would corner you and say, hey, I have two jazz records. You know what, you want to know what they are? Mm-hmm. You know, because the jazz was subversive. Mm-hmm. So these were um, subversive anti-communists, but mm-hmm. silent about it, who came to these concerts. And so my role was often to improvise texts. And, you know, I sang as well as played violin in these concerts. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of times, you know, I was able to improvise texts in German about, uh, you know, life in America improvisers, Indians, which was something they were so curious about. They'd come up to you, say, so softly near her mom, why did you do that to the Indians? Mm. You know, because this is their, whatever they think of us, we'd always remind them, we're actually Europeans, Mm. you know. (laughs) We're all Europeans. We're sort of all in this together. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was um, people who were... um, Anti-government, mm-hmm. pro, uh, you know, freedom, mm-hmm. but they weren't out with it because there was no point in being, you know, this was the way in those times that they could show their solidarity hmm. was to attend something like that. Well, how, how did you... So they were... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just curious. How did you feel vis-a-vis government... I mean, you're, you're, you're living and doing this, this, what, what were your accommodations like there? What was, what was, how did you feel in terms of uh, the institutions such as they were at that time? And I guess this is the late seventies or something. How, how did you feel? Uh, well, I thought they were um, brilliant in their um, plan to oppress the people. Brilliant. Use the word brilliant. Explain. What makes brilliant. Because you want a car. You can't get a new car for years, but you can get a used car that costs more than a new car. You want a diamond engagement ring or some Levi's? You're going to go to a special government store where they only take dollars or West German marks. So by this method, by consumerizing you, you know, they could collect all the money that your relatives were sending you, all the hard cash. Oh. You know, in those days, there were three television stations in the West, uh-huh. and um, they, people along the border could get those, and they didn't have commercials, what they had with the Verbeferen thing, the advertising television, which went on about an hour before regular TV came on. This wasn't East Germany. This was how it was in West Germany in those days, so the Advertising TV from 3 to 4, then 4 p.m. TV came. I understand now that TV's just like ours. But um, so people in East Germany got propagandized the same as the West Germans when it came to all these products. So I remember once um, I went over there with a friend of ours, a bass player, and he took a case of bananas and a chainsaw to his dad, who still lived over there. And so he walked in the front door of the dad's house with the chainsaw, and he said, is it a black decker? 
you know, because that's what black he saw on the Verba Fairn. Yeah. A Black and Decker <laughs> chainsaw and bananas. Right. And bananas. And bananas. In the other hand. Yeah. And those were, right. I guess those were gifts or those were, yeah. Well, you know, when you go across the border into one of those countries, you take things, and if you know people there, you, you get to know what they need. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, for example, in those days, East Germany and the Mittenwald region, they made some of the best violins that were made. Wow. But no East German could get one because they were all for export. Huh. So there are all kinds of shenanigans going on, like us going across the border with some piece of crap instrument then coming back with some other one. And they actually, you know, opened our cases and looked at the labels inside of our instruments to try to prevent that. So, you know, there was all kinds of ways to, that people were using to try to subvert the system. So, so and it makes you spend your time trying to figure out scams, uh -huh. you know, instead of advancing your life. Like your water pump is out on your car. Mm -hmm. Just get on a train and start going around to different towns looking for one. So if your government can do that kind of shortage on you and every day you have to wait in line an hour to get bread, you really don't think about the revolution. And that's what I mean by brilliant. Because hmm. the way they oppressed them was so clever. So we show up there and we what we're getting paid in in a gig is about equal to what? those people earn in a month. Mm. So there we are, and, we're go and you can't take the money out of the country. So that turns us into the fat cats. You go into a hotel, you buy pheasant for gla under glass for everyone in the restaurant, mm. or you know, go to a shop, buy 12 pairs of binoculars or something, because that's the only thing that's mm. available for you to buy with your bogus East German money that you can you know, you can take the binoculars out. There were things that you were allowed to buy. There would be big signs everywhere. You can't buy underwear. You can't buy sheets. You know, the basic thing, you can't buy shoes. But you could buy cameras and binoculars and stuff like that. So I felt that that was a clever way of making us all look like pigs. You know, people, I was with a guy once. We went to a stationery store. Well, you, you feel like we're here, we're earning money, we need to do something with it. So he just like bought every envelope they had. Wow. And took it home with him so he could do something with his money. So I really thought the whole thing was very clever. Hmm. And that they kept people down by making them think that if they were cooperative, they might be able to get some, some consumer items that would be important to them. Hmm. And so when the Westerners showed up and, and you know, made improvised about uh, demonstrations or history or hmm. the Constitution or, you know, it, it was art. So they, we never got hassled for that, even though I'm sure we crossed some lines. Mm-hmm. Did that answer your question, Mitch? Or? Oh, of course, sure. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. How long were you in East Germany before you guys went back to the States, I guess, in San Francisco, and and John started scoring these movies and formed the big band? And we're, we're, we're in, time, in terms well, of Well, it, 
it, it was West Germany that we lived, and we just traveled in and out of East Germany, mm. you know, to play with these international bands. So we lived there uh, about eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in our lifestyle, well, we couldn't afford for both of us not to be working. So I came back by myself. I worked in theater in San Francisco. I did that piece that I mentioned that I won the awards for. And John came over and played Sackbutt in that piece, which Sackbutt is a, uh, an early trombone. Because mm -hmm. the piece was um, based on Daniel Defoe, Journal of the Plague Year. So we were talking about, um, you know, it's almost the Middle Ages uh -huh. that that book was written about the bubonic plague. So we, uh -huh. we wanted to have old instruments for that. He played Sapphire. Well, that's exciting. Uh, it's exciting theater scene uh, at that time in San Francisco. And so... What what is happening? So there's a lot of personal things happen in, in your lives, and of course, health problems in these films. So in the late '80s and then onward, then what uh, what's the what's the timeline with that in terms of the uh, developments? Because then the Berlin Wall comes down, and talk a little bit about that that those years, if you don't mind. Um, well, we were living in San Francisco on 24th Street when the wall came down. I, I remember that day watching it on TV. John, you know, being a jazz musician, liked to sleep till noon every day. And I remember going in to our bedroom and waking him up and telling him. And, um, you know, we, we didn't think that would ever happen. And when we would visit East Germany or especially East Berlin, our friends would drive us around. They had this huge piece of land there, and they, they showed us this is where we're going to build the parliament and everything after the reunification, the Vita for Einigung. We said, dream on. That is never going to happen. You people just need to move on. Well, it did, it did happen. And so, um, and then we started getting calls, and, and people said, oh, we want the wall back. Right. <laughs> Those East Germans... They even have the wrong computer format. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't employ them. We, we don't have, any, you know, our country's going to be poor. But um, obviously, you know, it recovered and it assimilated the, you know, their fellow Germans. It took a while, but, but um, it worked very well. And we observed that and through, uh, you know, talking to our old friends there with, with great interest from over here. And we went back a couple times. They, uh, John Jost had some of his films on the Berlin Film Festival. And after we moved back to swing would that have been? Oh, in the 80s, for sure, in the late 80s, probably. And we went back and observed how normal everything seemed. Wow. And how, you know, people used to say, there's no way, think of how you're, if your country was divided at the Mississippi River and you couldn't go see anybody mm -hmm. on the other side, you know, how would you, would you be telling me, dream on, that's never going to, you're never going to solve that? No, we are going to solve that. And they did. That, that's fantastic. Um, how did you find, you're, you're not, how did you find time in all this to become a therapist? I understand that you're, uh, I mean, that, that's quite something. 
When, when, when did you, when did that start? When did that take, take place? Cause you, well, you know, John died in 96 and he was pretty active in the last years. And, and he, uh, <clears throat> he was director of the Bay Area Jazz Composers Orchestra, mm-hmm. but he got, um, you know, the, he had had the old cobalt radiation on his lungs, which is much more damaging. And, um, and so eventually he just uh, got repeated pneumonias and the radiation fibrosis of the lungs kind of took over him. And he was decided not to stop. And, um, we, uh, you know, we would go to the, he, for, he formed this band, Bay Area Jazz Composers Orchestra. He was one of the founders of it. And then when he couldn't play trombone anymore, he became the director of it. Mm-hmm. And by that time, he was on oxygen and everything. And he would do concerts, conducting the band, and then, um, you know, go off into the wings where I was standing there with his oxygen tank mm-hmm. and have a couple hits on his oxygen and go out and conduct another piece. Wow. And so that band was really brilliant. And there's a couple of recordings of them, including the Johnny was music for film, which I mentioned before. And um, it was a band whose format was mostly the players in it were composers themselves. So they did some standard pieces, but mostly they, they um, performed their own music. And that was really innovative and, and wonderful. And, John always said he didn't want to be a band leader, but that turned out to be the culmination of his musical life. And, and, um, well, I, I they, go ahead. Oh, I should say that's a terrific band. I mean, for those who haven't heard it, I'm going to try to, in the episode, we're going to try to put links to that band, uh, uh, footage of that band, because, um, there's some great music. That was a, that was a, um, a very high point in San Francisco musical history. Right, because you got uh, in San Francisco, you had the Keystone Corner on one part of town, then you got the the you guys another part of town. There's a lot going on there, right? So, well, there's a lot of great artists in San Francisco, and that was a really wonderful band for the years that it that it lasted. And um, you know, in San Francisco in those times, it was really important that you had a multicultural expression and that any activity you did, I had a choir at the time, Music in the Blood, and we got funding from the city and the state. And you really needed to have a multicultural outreach and, um, um, you know, people of color among you. And this was really important to funders. And and um, we attended even a a meeting of the National Endowment for the Arts in San Francisco, and they told us, this is going to be our test area for multicultural arts. Right. And so, um, you know, you all are going to have to take that on because the only all-white art that we're going to be subsidizing here is the opera and the ballet Hmm. and the symphony. Right. So that was a disadvantage for that band. Because they, you know, they didn't really have that. And it was a time of great change. And it, it was important, I think, that that changeover happened. But it kind of worked against that particular band and some of those artists. And I think they didn't get the recognition they would have got if they were in you know, Kansas City or something like that. 
So I guess I guess to, to rewind a little bit because it was so you became a therapist after John's death, correct? No, not after. Not okay. quite. I uh, I was going to uh, well, while I was caregiving John in the last couple of years, and the last year he lived on a breathing machine at home, mm-hmm. and he had to be on that about sixteen hours a day. So sometimes he could come off and go walk around the house or something, but he was very restricted. So I was doing gigs like artist in residence at an elementary school with some little play I wrote or something like that. And you, I thought, oh, I really need a grown-up career. And um, I had been in therapy, and then I became a voice teacher, and I realized that's just another form of therapist. Uh-huh. And so um, I knew that I would be good at that. So while John was Ill. It turned out that Dominican University was a very fine school. was right there in the city we were living in, San Rafael, California. And so we talked to his parents, and they helped uh, pay my tuition so I could go to that and get my um, master's degree in psychology wow. concurrent with being there to take care of John. And I also um, did a 27-unit course in art therapy at the UC Berkeley Extension. So that gave me a really good way, I thought, at the time of getting through all that because I, you know, I wasn't very mobile and I couldn't really take artists and resident gigs and go out and do my little children's plays because I couldn't leave John behind. So while, um, you know, while he was going through all that, I was there for him, and I was also able to go to school right there in the hometown. So let's see. Yes, John had passed away by the time I graduated, but but he was there for most of the years that it took me to get that degree. It, it just seems like a lot, a lot. I mean, a lot of the guests on our, on our podcast, one th- theme that keeps coming up over and over again well, one, aside from the theme of people not being able to be fit so well into a box, doing a lot of different kinds of uh, styles artistically. Another theme is people doing a lot of different occupations at one time. And uh, certainly you, you, you certainly fit, fit, the, uh, fit into that. Um, so you're, you're doing, what kind of, uh, are you doing a particular, you said art therapy, are you doing traditional psychotherapy or no, or something different or... What were you? Well, I'm still licensed, but I'm I don't I'm not practicing right now. Uh-huh. Right now, I live in Northern California near Santa Rosa in an over 55 community. We're on total isolation. Mm. Our all of our, you know, it's a it's a uh, community of about. 3,000 homes. They're all independently owned. And then there's an extended living facility here. And um, most people are living one or two people in in each house. And it's it was once upscale, but it's sort of declining now because it's from the 70s. But in any event, it's a mostly older population and people are very isolated. And this today is my eighth day in self-imposed quarantine. Wow. So I'm not practicing. I have a band here. It's called The Charms. Hmm. We, uh, uh, you know, have stopped rehearsing. We stopped our recording that we were doing. And Hmm. who knows if there'll be more gigs. Hmm. 
you know, everything has been closed here, all the upcoming concerts, all the upcoming events, you know, everything is canceled and indefinitely. And all we have, um, there's golf courses here and the golf courses are closed. So um, people are enjoying walking on the, uh, you know, the paths to the golf courses. Mm -hmm. And that's about all you see is people walking out there. Mm -hmm. And mostly, um, you know, we're getting groceries delivered because we're all in the high risk group. And everybody is in survival mode. Mm. So I'm not seeing any clients. Mm -hmm. I've talked to a couple on the phone. Um, But for the most part, everything you could call commerce or social interaction is shut down indefinitely. I, I should say to the listener, because these are not live shows, they're recorded. So I should say the date, the context of when this is being recorded is a March... Uh, 19th, right? Uh, 2020. Right. So you're, you're... And we just two days ago in Sonoma County got the, and that's the county where I live, um, we got the shelter-in-place order. And they're just asking everybody to stay home and unless they have essential business. So everybody's trying to figure out, is a roofing company essential business? Mm. You know, is, uh, is the... Uh, Animal control and essential business. A lot of people feel that um, the danger of infecting others is every bit as great as the danger of being infected oneself. So mm. uh, people are pretty much staying home. My a friend of mine has a daughter, thirty. Today is her due date. She's pregnant, mm. and um, she drove into San Francisco this morning. Mm to go to her doctor's appointment and she sent me a picture from, you know, on the Golden Gate Bridge and it's totally empty. Mm. So the whole area is shut down and we we just don't know what's going to happen. So music, psychotherapy, those aren't really going on. I I heard, Bill told me that there's an app, Kazam or something, where people... Um, through headphones can play together. So we're looking into that, so maybe we can still jam. Well, that's an excellent idea because I have some projects in mind to do with to do with Bill, uh, some of my own compositions, so I'm definitely not very open to trying to do something uh, long distance or streamed or something. So we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, I really Well, we hope to keep going somehow. I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time in such difficult circumstances to talk with us on this podcast because it's a... Uh, it is unusual circumstances, and it is difficult circumstances. But your, your story... Well, you're very welcome, and thank you so much for your interest in John English and his music. John, um, he also did a memoir. It's called Memory Space, and it's just really brilliant. And, and he unfortunately, you know, passed away before that age when we could really do all, a lot of self-publishing and... Even his CD, I put it in the hands of a producer. Mm-hmm. It cost me, you know, $7,000 and two years mm-hmm. to get that produced. And just a couple of years later, you know, I could have done it myself. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we make sure that people know about that memoir. I, I'd like to read it. I haven't read it. But I'm certainly interested in reading that. Um, is there anything, uh, you know, I hate to say goodbye. We always hate to say goodbye on, on this podcast. But before we, we do say goodbye, at least uh, temporarily, 
Is there anything else you want to say about music, about singing, or the violin, or your life, or, or children's theater, or anything that comes to your mind, um, or whatever you know, whatever bubbles up into your consciousness before we go? Well, what's bubbling out right now, Mitch, is just to ask people to remember that all the millions of Americans who are involved in culture, be it musical culture or, or poetry or theater or <laughs> growing flowers even, I mean, all this, what they now call the gig economy, and we used to call all the freelance workers, mm -hmm. these people are really up against it. Not only can they not practice you know, the thing that fuels them and gives them hope. But, um, you know, they're facing severe financial loss, and we really don't have a, a society that recognizes them, that recognizes their contribution. I'll consider myself one of them, though I've been fairly fortunate. But, but um, just keep in mind and give opportunities and when you get your thousand dollars, maybe there's somebody that needs it a lot more than you do. And um, keep on hoping. And I was just reading Gloria Steinem yesterday, and she was saying how hope is planning. And she said something like, um, if our hopes weren't already real within us, we couldn't even hope them. Mm. So um, hope on. Well, that's and hope that live music comes back. Oh, yeah. Well, that's live music, as you know, is one of the most important things. Candace, that was a really beautiful summary. I wish we could put that at the end of every episode. Um, I want to thank you for being on our podcast. It was real, a real treat. And, and I learned a lot, enormous amount. And I thank you for your, for your observations and your wisdom. Thank you, Mitch. I had a great time. And thank you for for, um, like again, buttons. for remembering so John English and bringing his accomplishments to the public. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.